Good to see everybody this morning. Hadn't it been a blessing to be in church already today? Let's put our hands together and just say thank you, Jesus, this morning as we continue to celebrate the Lord. Great to be here. And great to have all of you here. A special welcome to those of you this morning over at the Spanish Trail Campus. And a special shout out to my friends uh, Jeff and Brandy Godwin who spotted their pastor yesterday evening in the dark red lobster here in Pensacola. Came up and gave me a good word. <clears throat> and so, blessings to you guys this morning. Y'all look around over there and give them a wave today. And if they're not there, give them a hard time next week. Amen. It's good to have you all with us at Spanish Trail. We love you and proud of you. To those of you that are with us online, a special welcome to you as well. And I hope you're enjoying life this weekend. Uh, is Pat Mobley in the house this morning? Pat, are you in here today? Anybody spotted Pat Mobley? Today is St. Patrick's Day, and that's why Pat is named Pat, because he was born on St. Patrick's Day. And so happy birthday, Pat Mobley. We love you, brother. Don't get to shout him out very often, about once every seven or eight years on Sunday morning. Hope it's a great day, my friend. Blessings to you. We're proud of you and all that you mean to our congregation here at Hillcrest. Well, let's take our Bibles this morning. Y'all ready to get in the Word? Amen. Luke chapter 8. We're in a series of messages this morning in which we are looking at many of the questions that the Lord Jesus Christ asked and addressed Jesus was, of course, a master teacher. And as a master teacher, he utilized questions as any good teacher does. There are numerous questions of our Lord throughout the four gospels, and we're only isolating a handful of them in these important days at Hillcrest. And today we surely have another poignant question uh, to look at. These questions, of course, are all meant to challenge and inspire us, those of us who follow the Lord Jesus Christ, they're there to motivate us to deeper faith. They're there, of course, to help reveal in a better way the identity of Jesus, who Jesus is, and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, what only Christ can do. And today, we're going to look for a few minutes uh, concerning a question that deals with the awesome power of touch. What's going to happen in the passage we're going to look at <clears throat> throughout our morning today is that Jesus is going to walk through a teeming crowd of people, which was not an uncommon thing for him to do early in his ministry, this great crowd pressing against him. And Jesus is going to ask a question that to the disciples around him at the time seemed almost nonsensical. And the question was this, who touched me? Who touched me? Few things are as powerful as a human touch, you withhold a touch from a baby, and I'm told that the baby won't likely live for very long. Babies are meant to be touched and held, and their life hangs in the balance in large part on human touch. How many of you here this morning remember back to your courting days when cars had bench seats and there were no seatbelt laws? Amen. And you guys would encourage baby to scoot up next to you right there in the middle of the seat. Nobody thought a thing about that. If somebody tried that with my daughter, I would have taken a stick after them. In Jesus' name, of course, but I would have taken a stick after them. Everybody's got bucket seats today, so that's no longer a thing. And everybody should wear seat belts today. 
But during those courtship days, especially, touch is a really big deal, isn't it? And really, it still is. I read about a survey that was taken several years ago uh, where back in the day of pay telephones, you can't hardly find a pay telephone anywhere anymore, but there were pay telephones, of course, all over the major cities of the United States. And in those pay telephones was a change dispenser. And how many of you can remember the first thing that you did when you went up to use a pay telephone was to check to see if there's any money in it? And sometimes there would be. Well, there was a survey that was taken several years ago where money was intentionally left, a good deal of change, as much as they could fit in there, was left in those change dispensers. And uh, they would watch people come to make a phone call, and of course, most of those people would check to see if there was money there. And of course, they would feel the money, remove the money, and then pocket the money, right? But there was a person that was a part of the survey that as soon as that person finished their phone call and began to walk away, they would come running up behind them saying, excuse me, one moment. And they would stop them. And they would say, I'm sorry, I was here a few moments ago. I saw you using the telephone. I used it just a little bit ago and I forgot to get my change and I need that for my bus ticket home. Did you happen to find any change in the payphone, and of course, 95%, that was the result of the survey, 95% answered the question by saying what? No, man, there wasn't any money in there. And then they would turn and walk away. But then the second part of the survey involved the same scenario, money left in the pay telephone, a person coming up using the phone after checking the see if money was there, taking the money, pocketing the money, walking away, and then the person would come up, but rather than shouting at them from a distance, the person would then come up behind them and either put their hand on their shoulder or touch them on the arm and ask them, excuse me, I saw you using the telephone I left some money in there and I need it for my bus fare home. Did you happen to find any money? And with their hand on their shoulder or on their arm, interesting to me, the results were 100% reversed. 97% of the people said yes and then reached into their pocket or into their purse and retrieved the money and returned it to the person. Absolutely outstanding results. And the difference was one thing. A personal touch. Well, in the passage that we're going to look at this morning, we're going to find that Jesus is a Lord who touches with incredible power and results. And if you're here this morning needing some kind of a touch, maybe a healing touch, maybe you need an emotional touch, maybe you need an encouraging touch, maybe you need a spiritual touch. Can I just say this morning, you've come to the right place because Jesus Christ is ready to touch your life and he's ready to do it right here today. Jesus was a man that touched people throughout his entire ministry. Jesus touched lepers and they were cleansed. Jesus touched blind eyes and sight was restored. Jesus touched the ears and tongues of deaf mutes and a world of sound was open to them. Jesus touched little children and communicated tenderness and compassion and unconditional acceptance. Jesus touched a burial gurney of a dead man and by the simple power of his touch, a dead man 
was restored back to life again. If there's any one thing that's obvious throughout the course of the earthly ministry of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, it is simply this, there is life-changing power in the simple touch of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's ready to make a difference in your life today. And the opposite is just as true. There are also several examples from the ministry of Jesus where people reached out and touched him. And I think I can say with absolute clarity from the gospels, Jesus is ready to touch you today. But there are people here that in order to receive a touch from Jesus, you need to first reach out by faith and touch him. And that's the case in the example that we have before us this morning from Luke chapter 8, where this is really the story not just of one healing account, but really a story of two healing accounts that's wrapped up all in the same story. It's an account of two very different people. One of them, an important man who is so important that we have his name in Scripture. The other, an anonymous woman. One of them, a man of great high community profile, a known and well-respected man. The other, a woman who was living in the shadows, whom no one wanted to have anything to do with. One, a person of great financial means, who'd done well with life. The other, someone who didn't have a dime to her name. And yet, what they have in common is that they're in a desperate condition where only Jesus can help them and they're willing to reach out and touch Christ in order that Christ might reach out and touch them. Let's begin our reading this morning here in Luke chapter eight, beginning in verse number 40. Everybody ready to read? Would you say amen today? Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Now let's just stop there for a moment because I want you to keep in mind that at this stage of his earthly ministry, Jesus was just incredibly popular. He may have been the most popular man alive on the planet at the time. And he was drawing massive numbers of people wherever he went. Early in the ministry of Jesus, these great thronging crowds are gathering around him and that was gonna change in just a few months as Jesus would become more controversial. But early in his ministry, man, everybody was going to Jesus. Everybody wanted to see Jesus. Everybody wanted to hear from Jesus. Many were receiving a touch from Jesus. As we begin to read this story, Jesus is back in what had become his adult hometown. He lived for his early life, of course, in the -the out-of-the-way place, the -the out-of-the-way village of Nazareth in Galilee. But as an adult, Jesus had kind of moved, and the epicenter of his life and movement there in Galilee was Capernaum. And that's where he met many, if not most, of his disciples. So Jesus, having been away for a while, is now back at Capernaum, his hometown, his adopted hometown, and he presses his way through one of these large crowds that had gathered around him. And as he does, in this instance, he's met 
by an important city or a person of the city of uh, Capernaum whose name is Jairus. Jairus is the ruler of the synagogue, basically the, the chief rabbi of the synagogue. He's what we would call their senior pastor. In fact, uh, that's where Jesus went to synagogue. So this would have been Jesus's hometown church pastor, if we could put it that way. And he would have been a very well-respected man. He would have been somebody that was responsible for overseeing the teaching ministry of the synagogue. He would have been responsible for the worship of the synagogue services. Everybody in town certainly would have known who he was. But I'd imagine for most of the crowd, this was a Jairus that they'd never seen before. Because this is not a sophisticated, urbane Jairus that's coming up to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a Jairus whose life has all of a sudden started to spin out of control. This is a guy that everybody in town would have said, this is a man who's got everything all together. This is a man who would know how to deal with a crisis. And yet when we see him here for the first time in the gospel accounts coming up to Jesus, it's a Jairus that the people of the community of Capernaum had never seen before. He was emotional. He was sluggish. He was choked up. He was desperate. Now, Jesus had seen people like that before. In fact, he's just gotten back from the other side of the lake where he'd run into a wild man that was full of a legion of demons. Y'all remember that story? And that man, when Jesus went up on the shore, that man that was full of a legion of demons ran up to Jesus and fell down at the feet of Jesus, recognizing the lordship and the power of the Lord Jesus. Well, Jairus is not full of the devil by any means, but the reality is he does the same thing that the guy who is full of the devil does. He goes up to Jesus, does the same thing. He falls on the ground in desperation at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason, of course, pretty easy to see. He has a little girl, 12 years old, and that little girl is lying on her deathbed, and he knows it, his wife knows it, his family knows it, his neighbors know it, everybody knows that she's likely not gonna recover. He couldn't do anything about it. He'd probably tried all the doctors, all the medical remedies, nothing had worked. Now you have to remember that Jesus probably didn't get along too well with Jairus up to this point. Jesus tended not uh, to find a welcomed audience with the religious establishment of the day. And he probably didn't uh, fit the mold in the eyes of Jairus either. Jairus probably was not the president of the Jesus of Nazareth fan club, you know what I'm saying? And so they probably were at odds a time or two and so that's what makes it interesting. I'm telling you, when things get bad enough in your life, regardless of your perspective about Jesus, regardless of what you've thought about Jesus, regardless of what you may have said about Jesus, when things get bad enough in your life and you get desperate enough in life, you'll then sometimes and only then have the wisdom to run to Jesus as fast as you can. Because sometime you'll come to the understanding that there are things in your life that you cannot fix by sitting down and writing a check to somebody. There are things that require supernatural divine intervention from God. There are things that only Jesus can address. And Jairus is wise enough at this stage of emergency in his life to go straight to Jesus. And the reason is pretty clear. He'd heard the teaching of Jesus. He'd probably seen some of the miraculous acts of the Lord Jesus Christ. He'd seen what the Lord had done with others. And likely he wanted to know, is this something that Jesus could do 
for me as well. So he's willing to put everything on the line. Are you? You willing to put everything on the line in order to risk taking your problem to the Lord Jesus Christ, even though it may cost you in the eyes of family or friends, it may cost you into the community. Listen, this is a man that's willing to throw his status to the wind, his position to the wind, his ordination credentials to the wind, and he falls in humility and helplessness before the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the only thing left for him to do. And eventually, frankly, that's what matters of life and death will do to all of us. And what happens next is remarkable, something that you'd do well to note. When this man runs to a very busy Lord Jesus Christ in the middle of a chaotic crowd, the thing that you need to notice is Jesus is more than willing to stop for that man. Amen. And he'd be more than willing to stop for you as well. Verse 42, as Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. So Jairus has been to Jesus. Jesus has stopped, redirected the course of his momentum, and is now walking with Jairus toward his house. And as he and this massive crowd go along, here we have part two of the story cropping up because it's on the way to the house of Jairus to deal with one crisis that our Lord Jesus is interrupted by a second crisis that has absolutely nothing to do with the first crisis, but practically as serious nonetheless. Can I just say this morning, are you not thankful that our Lord Jesus Christ can deal with more than one issue, more than one crisis, more than one weird, crazy, unexpected life event all at the same time, amen. Seven and a half billion people in the world and if every single one of them were dealing with the crisis all at once and every single one of them took them to Jesus, it would be no problem for our Lord Jesus Christ. Very grateful for the power of God to accomplish great things in monumental ways. And this woman was in the same fix. She may not have been immediately on her deathbed, but she was surely headed that way because now here we're introduced to another person Jairus had a name, but this woman is not named at all. She's way down on the social status. We don't even know who she is, an unnamed woman. And she had been dealing with a physical issue for a long time. In fact, she'd been dealing with her physical issue for as long as Jairus' daughter had been alive. Jairus' daughter was 12 years old, but had gotten sick rather quickly. This woman had been dealing with a physical issue for 12 long years as long as that young girl had been alive on planet Earth. And hers is not a simple problem. It's a messy, embarrassing, uncontrollable uterine hemorrhage. And she had no relief from it. For what, I mean, imagine this, no relief whatsoever for over a decade of your life. And not only had the very life been nearly bled out of her, but she'd been bled nearly dry financially by all of the doctors. She'd been to every doctor she knew to go to. And some of the remedies, based on my reading, some of the remedies that those guys would have prescribed for her sound like things that would have come out of the medical manual of a witch doctor. Crazy stuff. 
And none of them, of course, worked. And so this woman had all kinds of problems. She obviously had a physical problem. She had a financial problem as a result of her physical problem. And people in the room today that can relate to that because oftentimes financial or physical problems lead directly to financial problems. That was her. But then there were also spiritual and relational problems that arose because her condition had her totally isolated from her community because it involved blood, all that bleeding. In the eyes of the Jewish community rendered her what before the Lord? Unclean before the Lord, unclean before human beings. Now here's the thing. That was true for every, most every woman for at least about a week out of every month. Everybody with me? Every woman was unclean at least part of the month because of the issue of blood. Blood caused all kinds of problems from the standpoint of worship. So every woman, at least for a time, had to isolate herself from family and from the religious community and so forth and so on until she went through rites of purification, got cleansed again, and then was able to go back and take her normal position in society. Uh, But this was different. This woman gets no relief. She has a persistent issue of blood, which means she's what? Perpetually unclean. Unclean all the time, 24-7, 365. She couldn't go to the synagogue. She couldn't go to the temple to worship God. She couldn't hug anybody in her family. She couldn't be around her family. She couldn't touch anybody she knew. She couldn't shake anybody's hand. If she'd had a husband, my guess is he was probably gone long ago. He had more than sufficient grounds to get rid of this wife. If she had children, they probably went with the husband, torn away from her, no contact, no worship, no touch, 12 long years. Y'all tracking with me? Say amen. This woman had physical issues, financial issues, psychological issues, spiritual issues, all of them in play at the same time. It was a real mess. It was a problem she could not solve. And with all those financial reserves depleted, isolated from everybody she knew, no place to go, no place to live, nobody to love her, The woman did the only thing left to do that she knew to do when she heard Jesus was coming through town. The only thing left to do was to bring that miserable mess to Jesus Christ. And she found that Jesus was willing to do the same thing for her even though she has no name. She has no friends. She has no family. She has no money. Our Lord does the same thing for her that he did for the well-to-do guy. He's willing to stop for somebody in need. Verse 44, she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And what? Immediately, her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, and here it is, who was it that touched me? And when all denied it, Peter said, Master, Master, crowd, are you not noticing the crowd, Lord? There is a large crowd around you, and they're all pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Somebody touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. 
One of the things you need to notice is this woman is so desperate, she's willing to break the law. And she breaks all manner of law to get to Jesus, all matter of Mosaic legislation, Mosaic law of the Old Testament, because she was determined. She didn't want to make a big deal, but she's in a crowd. She's trying to come up from Jesus from behind. She doesn't want to face him off. She's afraid of what the answer might be, I'm sure. And so she's covert. She doesn't want anybody to notice she's there. And so she's pressing through the crowd, touching all these people she's not supposed to touch. That frail, little, diseased body of hers boxing people out in order to try in her weak, anemic stage to work herself through the crowd to get up to the front that she might somehow reach out and just touch the hem of his garment, as the King James Bible says. And eventually, she's able to do that and reaches through the crowd and just touches the bottom part of his tunic. And immediately, she felt the power of Jesus coursing through her body. And all that was wrong was made right. Instantly, she was healed. Immediately is the key word. One touch, and all was well. And Jesus felt it too, didn't he? Because the first thing he does is ask a question. And when Peter hears him ask the question, here's Peter raising his head again. Do we not love Peter at Hillcrest? Everybody say amen. Peter looks at Jesus and he says, Lord, what do you mean who touched you? You've got a thousand people reaching out and touching you. Everybody's touching you. What is that supposed to mean, who touched me? And she touched him and he felt it. And people were reaching him. It's not any wonder why people were reaching out to touch him. They all had good reason. There are people in the room today who need a touch from Jesus and are desperately trying to find it. People try to touch Jesus for all kinds of reasons. Some of them right, some of them not so right. Some people touch Jesus out of curiosity. They're not really serious about Jesus, but they want to know more. Some people touch Jesus out of pressure simply because they have no real other place to turn, but they're not really serious about who Jesus is. They're just looking for some kind of relief. Some people touch Jesus out of coercion because their mother, their father dragged them to church. They have drug problems, amen, they got drugged to church. And so because mama said, you will touch the Lord and you will get baptized, they touch Jesus, but they're coerced. It's not out of free will. Some touch Jesus out of obligation. And there's always a difference though when somebody touches Jesus out of faith. See, when you touch Jesus out of faith, that's a difference-making response. And by the way, that's what this woman does. She reaches out and touches Jesus out of a response of faith. And that's really what heals the woman. She believed that Jesus had the power to heal her body. That's what's bound up in that desperation. She's desperate to get to Jesus because she honestly believes that Jesus can do something for her that nobody else has ever been able to do. And so the touch was simply an act of faith. She felt it when she touched the Lord, and the Lord felt it when she touched him. And he always does. The Lord always knows it when he's touched with a heart of faith. And yet, coming from Jesus, it still seems a rather unusual question to ask, who touched me? Many people, I think, 
honestly believe that Jesus didn't know. And you know, this is kind of a tricky kind of question because when Jesus came in human form, he had a human body. And so Jesus was 100% human, right? I'm struggling with allergies. It, 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 it calms me to know that Jesus may have been allergic to things. Jesus probably got sick from time to time. He probably ran a fever from time to time. He got an upset stomach when he ate too much fried fish. I think they fried fish back in those days. If they didn't, they should have. Can I have an amen? Theologians call this the voluntary self-limitation of the Messiah. There were certain things that Jesus left behind in heaven when he came to earth. And we've talked about this before, right? Uh, when Jesus was a child, he, he had a brain and he needed to grow. He had to be taught by teachers. He didn't just come into the world knowing every mathematical equation, so to speak. And so it could have been that Jesus really didn't know who touched him. And he's trying to find the identity of the woman. That may well be the case. But it could also be that he did because there are times where the Spirit of God comes upon Jesus and acts supernaturally, giving Jesus special insight to know what was actually in a person's heart. And that may well be what's at play here as well. Jesus may be asking the question not so much for his own information, but I think that he's probably asking the question not for his benefit, but for the benefit of the woman and for the benefit of the crowd. You know what I'm saying? Because he wants them to do something in response to this incredible act of healing that just took place right in the middle of the crowd. So I think this is a rhetorical question, not an informational question. He, he calls out the woman. This woman uh, was doing everything that she could possibly do to stay anonymous. She comes from behind. She probably has her face covered. She's working her way through the crowd. She doesn't want anybody to notice her because that's going to cause problems. People are liable to get mad at her. They'll have to go through this series of ritual washings before they can worship again. So she's being really covert. The last thing this woman wants to do is to be identified by anybody. And yet that's exactly what it seems that Jesus is trying to do in her life. I think Jesus is asking the question, as a means of calling the woman out. And I think that probably scares her half to death. Now, why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus call the woman out? Can I just say this morning, when Jesus delivers people, when Jesus saves people, he doesn't save people for them to remain anonymous and for them to continue hanging out in the crowd. Jesus saves people in order for people to stand out of the crowd and to come out for the crowd. You know what Jesus is doing? He's giving this woman an opportunity to glorify God for what he had done in her life, which is what we should always do whenever the Lord works a dramatic miracle in our life. Whether it's a miracle of physical healing, a miracle of financial healing, I'm telling you there are people today that when you go to your connect group, you ought to stand up and tell what the Lord has done for you. We had time in this room right now, I'd give people opportunity to do it. Because when God brings an act of deliverance, he wants to get the glory for it. <clears throat> he doesn't want you to stay covert in the crowd. Stand up and give testimony as to who Christ is and what Christ has done for you in your life. Verse 47, and when the woman saw that she was not hidden, and this is where the organ music begins to play. 
She's found out. She came trembling and falling down before Jesus. She declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, it's the only time Jesus uses that word directly to a person. Daughter, your faith has made you well go in peace. And I think that there are two levels there as there are two levels typically operating all of the time in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because her faith had healed her physically, but her faith had also healed that woman spiritually. She was now a child of the living God. Not just included among the people of Israel, but she was actually a transformed, redeemed person whose faith had made an eternal difference in her life. She is now the daughter of the living Lord. And she was willing to give testimony because of that. Can I just say this morning, Jesus never intends for his acts of deliverance in your life, his saving power in your life to be kept private. I've said before, I say it again today, there ought not be any covert soldiers in the Lord's army. No covert operatives. Jesus said, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. This, brothers and sisters, is what it means to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I make a radical statement here this morning? Just because you're part of the crowd following Jesus does not mean that you're following Jesus. Being a part of the crowd who's in the presence of Jesus, never makes anybody a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just because you're part of the crowd does not mean that you're connected to Christ. Crowds aren't always a good thing, by the way. In fact, Jesus seems to go out of his way throughout much of his ministry to thin out the crowds. And I'd say he did a pretty good job thinning out the crowds because by the time we get to the ascension, there's only 120 disciples. One, two, zero which is about the size of the average American church, by the way. Only 120 out of all these massive teeming crowds, thousands and thousands who were in the crowd, the great majority never connected to Jesus Christ. But those 120 were the true blue followers. They were the real disciples. They were the ones who had come out of the crowd. They'd heard about Jesus. They'd moved toward Jesus. They'd reached out and touched Jesus. Jesus had responded by reaching out and touching them, and they took their stand publicly for Jesus Christ. And so should you. This, by the way, we're going to be baptizing at the end of both services today, and this is why baptism is a big deal. It's why it's a big deal to us at Hillcrest, why it's a big deal to the Christian church in general. Because baptism is the means by which disciples of Jesus stand out of the crowd. It's the means by which we publicly acknowledge that I have touched Jesus and Christ has touched me. That he's delivered me, that he's delivered me from the very sin that has rendered me unclean in the sight of a holy God. And through the power of the touch of Jesus, Christ has washed all of that sin away. And he's changed my life. And no longer am I unclean in the presence of the holy God. I am now accepted as one of his children, restored to a condition of wholeness before God himself. And then as now, that can be kind of a frightening prospect for some people because it's just easier to stay lost in the crowd. But you can't stay lost in the crowd because Jesus always calls us out the crowd. 
And baptism is the unique opportunity for people who have touched the Lord and been touched by the Lord to give a public witness that Jesus is Lord and that he has radically changed my life. Can I just say, I'm sure this woman was a little shaky too. In fact, we know she was. She goes before the Lord and what? She trembles. She didn't know what the crowd's gonna do. She didn't know what they're gonna say. She didn't know if a rock party's gonna break out with stones like the real stones. So she's in some sense terrified. And she didn't have to do what she did. She could have kept her mouth closed. She could have stayed in the shadows. Man, she could have turned and run off for that matter. But she didn't. And you know why? Because to have remained silent, to have remained hushed in the comfort of the crowd, to have turned and walked away, any or all of those three would have been to deny Christ. And based on what Christ had done for her, that may well have been the worst possible sin of all. So she opens up her mouth and the Bible says she declared in the presence of all the people how she had been immediately healed. And that ought to be the response of every true blue disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ when Christ saves them when Christ provides for them, when Christ delivers them, when Christ strengthens them, when Christ upholds them, make sure that you don't deny Christ with your life. Make sure that you tell what the Lord has done for you. Who here at Hillcrest today has an issue that they need to bring to Jesus. Physical issue, financial issue, marital issue, relational issue, family issue, psychological issue, spiritual issue. I can't promise the outcome. That's between you and the Lord. I can't promise you'll be instantly healed. I can't promise a suitcase full of money will be falling down the chimney by the time you get home today. I can't promise any of that stuff, but there are some promises I can make that if you'll reach out and touch Jesus Christ with that issue even today, I can promise the peace of God that passes understanding. I can promise a joy that's unspeakable and full of glory. I can promise encouragement. I can promise grace. I can, I can promise strength. I can promise power for you to continue your journey. I can promise that if you'll take time to stretch out to touch Jesus, Jesus will take time to stop for you and he'll respond to your touch with a touch. And like this woman, regardless of what happens to your life, Christ will touch you and you'll be able just like her to turn from Jesus and go in peace knowing that the Lord Jesus Christ in his power is more than enough to meet whatever issue you need to bring to him today and every need that you have now and for the rest of your life.
Who at Hillcrest today has an issue you need to bring to Jesus? If you reach out and touch him, our Lord will surely reach out and touch you and change the rest of your life for his glory.